John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. This is a set of islands to the east of Australia, just about 150 or so years ago, uh, mid to late 1800s. He's there on uh, trying to, to reach the, the, the native tribes that are in that land. And one evening, his hut where he is living is surrounded by an angry uh, tribe that are ready to kill him. He knows that he is outnumbered. He knows that there's no way that he and his wife, they can defend themselves. They know really without prayer, there is no hope. So they spend the whole night in prayer. I mean, just laying everything before God, laying their lives before God, asking for God to intervene, asking for God to bring protection. As they peered out their windows as the sun was rising, they noticed that no one was out there. So they went on with life and went on with ministry. It was about a year later that some of the people from that tribe came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They came to realize that Jesus had come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for their sin, and that he could offer them forgiveness and eternal life. And as they came to understand that, many received and believed and prayed to receive Christ in their life, and their life was radically changed. But the chief of the tribe then comes back to John Patton and says, you know, about a year ago, our tribe had gathered around your house and we were going to come in. Who were all those armed men that were set up around your house? And he said, what? What are you talking about? He said, you know, the guys with the, the swords and the shields that had lined up around your house, who were they? And with that, Patton knew that God had sent his angels. And the book that Billy Graham wrote on angels, he records that account. God shows his great and mighty power. Sometimes he can use an angel Sometimes he just shows his mighty hand. But we find that God, the powerful God of all the universe, takes time to listen to us as we pray. And there may be experiences in your life that could be different because you pray. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah 37 and we're going to actually look at Isaiah 36 and 37 together today. I'm going to read a short passage, but if you have your Bible, keep it open. And we're going to look through Isaiah 36 and 37. But I want us to read some key, key verses. Isaiah 37, verse 21. It says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Notice those words in verse number 21. Because you have prayed to me. This is my preaching Bible. The only thing I do with this Bible is I, I preach with it. 
I have other Bibles that I use devotion, do devotions in and other ones that I mark up. But because I'm going to preach in this one regularly, I, I don't make really any marks in it. But I have to admit, as I turn to this passage again, that those, that verse was marked in those words. Because you have prayed to me. With that, let's pray. God, I ask for you to speak. And Lord, I, I don't know what's going on in, in some of the lives that are here. Some of them may be in really challenging situations. But God, would you give us a voice to pray, a life and a faith to trust, and would you just show yourself powerful once again? In your name, amen. As you look back at the Old Testament, you find that Israel really reached its kind of peak in influence during its time of the United Kingdom. This is the time when King Saul is on the throne, and then when King David is on the throne, and David conquers some of the nations uh, and tribes that are around him, and then Solomon has so much uh, wealth. We find that that time was probably the the most influential, the greatest, strongest kingdom that Israel had ever experienced in their entire history. They were a force to be reckoned with, and the world knew about Israel. They knew about God's people. Well, in 931, after Solomon died, we find that Rehoboam became the king, and Rehoboam made some really bad choices, and so the kingdom split. Ten tribes on the north became Israel, and there were two tribes in the south that became Judah. This happened in 931 B.C. In the northern tribes, uh, the northern ten tribes, you remember Israel was broken into 12 tribes. The northern ten tribes, for about 200 years, had evil and wicked kings and evil and wicked people that filled their life with idolatry and immorality. Now, there was some of that in Judah, but Judah had some kings that drew people back to God and said, no, we got to go this way. But in the northern kingdom itself, they were filled with, it was filled with paganism, idolatry, building strange altars, offering fire, offering sacrifices to other gods. It was a nation filled with idolatry and immorality. And after God's patience for 200 plus years, he finally allowed them to be disciplined at his hand through the Assyrians. And so in 722 BC, the Assyrians had come down and now were the world power. They conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Despite the preaching of men like Elijah and Elisha and Hosea and Amos, the northern tribes did not and would not listen. So God allowed them in 722 to be taken by the Assyrian Empire. It was a brutal, pagan, idolatrous, immoral culture that uh, was very vengeful and uh, very, very violent. 722. About 20 years later, King Hezekiah is on the throne in the southern two tribes of Judah. And now Assyria is coming for them. King Hezekiah has uh, been charged tribute or taxes. In other words, you've got to pay the Assyrians to stay out of your 
uh, business. And they had made those tribute or tax payments to Assyria to keep the peace. But Hezekiah decided, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pay. I don't feel like paying all of that. So he decided one year he wasn't going to pay. And so Sennacherib and the Assyrians began to, to move forward. And then they thought, oh, man, no, no, no. We're paying. We're paying. We're, no, we're, we just got behind. We, we forgot. We're, we're paying. So they paid, but it was too late. Sennacherib said no. Nobody's going to treat us like that. You're not going to disrespect us and not pay our tax or tribute to us. We're coming after you. And in Isaiah chapter 36, we find that the Rabshakeh, who is the kind of the, the chief of administration, the chief of staff for Sennacherib, shows up in Jerusalem with an army. They have already knocked off some of the outer cities and now they have moved all the way to Jerusalem itself and now they want to see King Hezekiah. Hezekiah, instead of going out to to meet them, sends three men. He sends uh, Eliakim, he sends Shebna, and he sends Joah. These three men go out as their envoy from the king to meet the the chief of administration, the Rabshakeh. And the Rabshakeh has some really tense words for them as they come out. You notice in Isaiah chapter 36, he basically tells them, you guys are weak, you don't have a plan to defeat us, and you are in trouble. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Isaiah chapter 36. And pick up in verse number four. It says, the, Reb, the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, for they are mere words. Now, in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Who do you think you are? You don't have an army. You don't have enough plans. You don't have enough manpower. We are going to knock you out. The great king of Assyria is going to overthrow this puny king, uh, Hezekiah of Judah. He goes on and he says, and if you think that the Egyptians are going to help you. Let me tell you what they're like. Notice with me in, in verse number six. Look, you're trusting in the staff of a, this broken reed, Egypt, in which a man leans. So if you think of a, of a broken staff or a broken reed, if, if you grew up around a pond, you may have seen a cattail before. A cattail, kind of a, kind of a sturdy reed. And he says, look, Egypt is like a, like a broken reed. They have no strength. They have no power. We're still, even if you bring the Egyptians on, we are going to knock you out. He goes on then in the next couple of verses and says, matter of fact, your army is so weak and so vulnerable. If we give you 2,000 horses so that you can can get on the horses with your swords and, and your javelins and your spears, you can take 2,000 horses, we'll still knock you out. We'll still defeat you because you don't even have a strong enough army if we gave you 2,000 horses. It's kind of like one team saying to another team, look, I mean, you know, we know that we're so much better than you that we'll give you a 10-point lead before we ever start the game. You know, we'll give you a 20-point lead. We'll only take two outs instead of three outs. None of our baskets will count as three-pointers. We just know we're so confident we're going to beat you that we'll give you some advantages because you think you might beat us. 
Ah, Egypt can't help. The king Hezekiah can't help you. 2,000 horses can't help you. He goes on to, to ultimately say in verse number, uh, number 10, notice with me, of chapter 36. Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So now, I mean, they're just making fun of them. I mean, they're just teasing them absolutely now. He said, look, we'll give you 2,000 horses. Look, you don't have enough strength. Look, you can bring the Egyptian army into this. And let me tell you this. Your Lord told us to do this. He's the one who instructed us. So now they're just flat mocking them, saying... Yeah, uh, you, you think you're strong and mighty and, and have this, this fortified city of Jerusalem against us. And there are people that you can imagine that are watching, sitting on the walls as these three men as an envoy for the king are meeting with the Rabshak. And he basically says, look, you don't have any plans. You have a weak army. You can't do anything. We could give you 2,000 soldiers or 2,000 horses and you couldn't do anything. You think the Egyptians are going to help you? We can wipe them out too. Hey, do do you think that your God's going to help us? Your God is the one who told us to come and to do this. This is a life or death moment, not only for King Hezekiah, but for all of the nation. And you can imagine as people are sitting on the the, the wall of Jerusalem and people are, are... kind of hiding beside the wall, seeing and thinking, what is going on here? We hear this guy talking and we, we hear all that he's saying. And so uh, as, as they're, they're proceeding along, notice in verse number 11, Eliakim and Shebna and Joah from, from King Hezekiah, a godly king, they say to the Rabshakeh, listen, don't speak to us in Hebrew. Speak to us in Aramaic. Because if you speak to us in Aramaic, then, then the people won't understand out there. But when you speak to us loud and in Hebrew, then the people up in the walls can hear what you're talking about. That's what he says. Notice with me in verse number 11. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. And then notice what happens in verse number 12. But the Rabshakeh said... Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? So now he comes back and says, look, this is what's going to happen. I want you to understand this. And the Rabshak is speaking louder and now the people on the walls can hear it. Look, we didn't come just for the king. We come to tell everybody that we're going to conquer. As a matter of fact, if you don't surrender to us, and this is what he says, You're going to eat and drink your own waste. Now, that's the rated G Bible version. I'm sure it was much worse than that when the Assyrians cut loose on how they were going to kill him and what they were going to eat. You can imagine now the people are getting afraid. And then he, he tells them that, that they can't let uh, Hezekiah de- deceive them. Notice verse 14 and 15. Thus says the king, the king of, of Assyria, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. And then in verse number 16 and following, he says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Instead, make peace with me by a present. Notice verse 16. Come out with me and every one of you will eat from his own vine and one from his own fig tree. And every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own. So this is what he says. The king of Assyria 
is saying this. If you don't surrender to us, you're going to eat and drink your own waste. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Don't listen to him. Don't let him give a message about God that he's going to deliver. It's not going to happen. But if you'll surrender to us, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have your own cistern. You're going to have your own well. You're going to have your own vine to eat from. You're going to have your own figs to eat. It's going to be much better when we take you to a land that is like your own. We're going to carry you off as you surrender to us, and we're going to take care of you. How do you think the people on the wall felt when they heard that? How do you think Eliakim and Shebna and Joah felt when they heard those words? And now with that, he closes and concludes his speech. And it tells us that these three men who are on envoy from King Hezekiah, they are there and they say nothing. And all the people on the wall who hear this say nothing. The king has told them to hold their peace. Don't say anything. But as they walk away without saying a word, they come back to King Hezekiah with their clothes torn in deep mourning. They know they're in trouble. They know they are hopeless. They know they are helpless. They know they're, that they are outmanned. They, they know they're outgunned. They know that they are dead. They come to Hezekiah. Hezekiah goes to the temple of the Lord and he calls for Isaiah in the opening verses of Isaiah 37. And as he calls for Isaiah, there's a word that comes. Isaiah says, look, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a deceiving spirit who's going to come and speak to the king of Assyria and about an invading army. And they are going to take some of their army and they're going to pull back from the walls of Jerusalem and they're going to set camp up somewhere else. And as they set camp up somewhere else, you're going to have a temporary reprieve. We can take a breath. But it's just very temporary. Because notice with me what happens next. In verse number six, the Rabshakeh returns after they had left for a, for a, a time and he found the king of Assyria and then he begins to share a letter. Notice with me uh, in, in verse number 10 and following, I won't read all of it. Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And he goes on and he says, we've conquered other nations who had other gods and we're taking you down. You are hopeless. The gun is to your head. You might have a little bit because we've restationed, but we're coming back for you. And so then Hezekiah the king does something very interesting. Notice with me in verse number 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. This is what Hezekiah does. He takes that, those letters and he puts them out on the temple. And he begins to pray over them. And he prays to God and he asks God for deliverance. And then Isaiah comes to him 
and says, because you have prayed, let me tell you what's going to happen to the king of Assyria. He gives us a, from verse 22 through for the, about the next 14 verses. He has this long narration, this long prophetic message about what is going to happen to the king of Assyria. But let's let's not look at all the details of the message except to look back in, in Isaiah 37, 36. And it says, then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Because you have prayed to me. Because you have prayed to me. James tells us that often we have not because we ask not. And here, prayer was the exact vehicle that God would use to dispose of an Assyrian army. And as they woke up the next morning, I've read and heard different things. Obviously, as an angel of the Lord comes, some people have said that a bubonic plague came through overnight. I've heard that dysentery attacked them overnight. Don't know what it was, what the Lord used. Wouldn't it be interesting if it was dysentery, though, after they just said that you're going to have to eat and drink your own ways, that they would get that? I mean, just how ironic that would be. Uh, But the picture is, The angel of the Lord took out 185,000 of their soldiers and they woke up the ones whose lives were spared and they said, man, what in the world happened? We're going back to Nineveh. Because you have prayed to me. Over the last few weeks, we have talked about our God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And here, when Hezekiah has his back to the wall, not only for his own life, but he stares death of his kingdom in the face because you have prayed to me. There's the answer. So let me give you five real quick thoughts. Don't don't lose it on me here, okay? But five quick thoughts on on prayer. First off, when we look at Hezekiah and what he did, lay every need or lay everything out before God. Notice in verse number 14, Hezekiah received the letter. He received the letter and he went and laid it out before God. He prayed over it. I don't know about you, but I will tell you, there have been times in my life where I've had to lay things out before God. When I was in Mississippi as a pastor, We had a very small piece of land, a plot of property came up next to us that I felt like the Lord really wanted us to have. And I used to take that plot of property and I used to go lay it on the steps. I was uh, it was I was the only staff member that was there during the day. Uh, And so I would come and lay them on the steps kind of at our at our uh, altar kind of place that we would call it where we would pray. And I'd lay that on the steps and I'd cry out to God because I felt like we needed more property. There have been times I've had to take a bill and lay it before God and say, God, I lay this before you. There are times when there are decisions that you just lay them before God. Every once in a while in ministry, believe it or not, you get a a less than comforting and encouraging letter. And sometimes I've had to take those and lay them before, before God. I was on a Zoom call with a guy who'd been in ministry 76 years uh, a, a week and a half ago. And he said in 1955, he walked into a deacon's meeting 
and they had 53 things that were wrong with him as pastor. 53. 53 things they didn't like about him as their pastor. And uh, he said, man, I walked away from that heartbroken. And he said, I went home and I told my wife. And he said, my wife added some more things. So I don't, you know. Uh, the, the, the picture is, is sometimes we just have to lay things before God. And when we lay everything out before him with a heart for him and a desire, I'm not talking about doing something sinful and foolish and then saying, God, I want to sow my wild oats and then pray for crop failure. You know, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we face a serious transition or an intense situation in our lives saying, God, I am laying this out before you. I want and pray for you to move. You know how to handle this. I do not. You can take this. It is over my head. It is not over yours. Notice he declares then the greatness of God. Notice in the the next verse there in, in verse number 15. He says, then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord God saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim that he's dealing with the Ark of the Covenant there. You are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Declare his greatness. Say, God, I lay this before you. And Lord, the situation looks over my head and overwhelming. But God, you are the God of the Ark of the Covenant. Man, I remember the story, Lord, when the the priests took it and, and they walked through the Jordan River when they were carrying the Ark. God, you are the God of creation. And Lord, if you can fling that sun up there 93 million miles away from the earth, surely you can take care of all the problems that I have. Yesterday, SpaceX flew off into space, and yet how how amazing it is that in Genesis 1.16, it says that God, you know, he creates the sun and he creates the moon, the lesser light, and it also says and he created the stars also. It's the thing that, man, we spend millions of dollars and try to tap into all this technology, and in the Bible, it just gives us this simple picture. God made a great light, God made a lesser light, and then he put the stars there also. This awesomeness of God. Listen, if God is the creator of the universe, how big is our problem in comparison to that? So we look at our problem and we lay it before him and then say, God, we know you can handle it. God, this is all up to you. Next thing he does, notice with me in verse number 17. Incline your ear, O Lord. Open your eyes, O Lord, see and hear all the words of Sennacherib. Then notice down in verse number 20. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. They cry out. They cry out for his help. He says, Lord, incline your ear. Lord, take a look and see what's happening. God, save us. That's their, that's his cry. Lord, save me. This is not a long prayer. Did, did you notice this is only verse 17 through 20? This is, this is not a long prayer. I skipped just a little bit, but, but we find that, that God, we need you to help us. Lord, we need you to save us. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 14 where Peter starts to sink in the water and he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Little prayer brought a big answer. Here we see again a, a short prayer with desperation and passion. We say, Lord, God, we, we lay everything on the line. Lord, we know that you're great. Lord, we need your help. But then notice at the end of verse number 21. Notice, or the end of verse 20, sorry. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from the land 
that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Seek his glory. Hezekiah is not praying, Lord, just, just save us for us. But he's saying, Lord, save us so that the world may know that you are the great God. Lord, we want to show your greatness. We want to show your glory. We want to show how awesome and wonderful you are, not only to our two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, but Lord, show the world how great you are. That's the picture. And when we go to God with an attitude that says, Lord, man, we just lay everything on the line. We cast all of our cares before you because we know you care for us. Lord, we know that you are are, are great. Lord, we need you to, to save us. And Lord, it needs to be done for your honor and glory. And then we come to that place. Notice he says, you are the Lord, you alone. And then Isaiah comes and says, because you have prayed to me. You have to trust him. You have to trust him. Listen, as one of God's sheep, as one of God's people, this is what the plan is. God wants us to lay all of our needs, everything, our life, not, not, not just our want list, not just a to-do list. Get your eyes off yourself and just say, Lord, I lay my life down to you and everything in my life. God, I'm yours. I'm one of the sheep of, of, of your pasture. And because of that, my problem is ultimately your problem. My situation, God, is ultimately your situation. So, Lord, I lay everything out before you. And, God, I know that you are are great. And, Lord, I cry out to you to save us. And, Lord, may it be for your honor and glory. And then we take a breath and we trust him. And we say, Lord, here it is. It's all yours. That's really easy to say. It can be really challenging to do. Isaiah comes and says, because you have prayed to me. In prayer, our our position is to come to him as boss, as Lord, as owner, as overseer of every aspect of our life. To recognize how great and awesome and wonderful he is to ask specifically for his help, to ask for his glory to be shown, and then to trust him. You say, well, buddy, I've done that before, and and God didn't answer the prayer that I wanted to and the way that I wanted to. In those instances, that's why you have to use those words, trust him. That God knows what's ultimately for our good and for his glory. Last Sunday afternoon, Julie and I took off after church. And uh, went to Mississippi to see a very dear friend. He's like family to us. When we moved to our first church, Luke uh, was nine months old. So it was 24 years ago. Luke was nine months old. Joel and Micah were both born when we were at our first church. And uh, we were 300 miles away from home. And so we had some uh, stand-in grandparents who really became like family to us. Seven weeks ago, Saturday, he woke up and his left hand didn't feel right. I mean, he had just been riding his motorcycle, been on his tractor, cutting grass, doing all those normal things that that he did. But on that Saturday, he woke up, his left hand didn't feel right. He couldn't move it all the way right. 
He ended up getting a doctor appointment on Tuesday, sent to the hospital, found out he had a, two brain tumors, one smaller one, one larger one. We prayed. We asked God to, to move. They said it was inoperable and incurable. Another doctor gave some hope and said, well, I, I think I maybe can give you a little more time. Last week, he was put on hospice. And despite our prayers of saying, Lord, you know, save him. Wednesday, Julie and I had a tearful goodbye. He was awake and alert, but we said goodbye to him. And uh, he died yesterday morning, seven weeks exactly from the day he woke up with his left hand not feeling right. Now, he's a believer. We know he's in heaven. We're confident of that. And in issues and in times like this, we have to trust. We don't have to understand it all. To be honest with you, we don't even have to like it all. But we have to trust no matter what. I close with this. When we were there, we got there Sunday afternoon and stayed through Wednesday and family members were coming by and he was expressing his love to them and blessing them. And it was sweet to watch and, and we received those words of love and encouragement as well. But as we were saying our goodbyes on Wednesday, there were two things. He wanted to make sure that he knew the people around him loved him. Can I tell you, as I talked to him, he was concerned about some people that he had tried to share Jesus with who didn't come to know him yet, who haven't come to know Jesus yet. Two things he was concerned about. Blessing and showing love to those that were around him, his family and his friends, and caring and, and really getting emotional about those who do not know Jesus. And if I could think of any legacy that any of us would want to leave, it's a legacy of love, for our families, our friends, and a legacy of concern for those who do not know Jesus. We're called to ultimately trust, and we leave the results with him, and that's what faith is all about. I'll preach his funeral this week, and I will share with those who will be there who don't know Jesus yet, and I will give them the word as best I can on how Jesus came lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again. And he offers salvation. That's the place of trust. Death is not the worst thing that can happen. Matter of fact, as a believer, I mean, we understand and know there's something far greater yet to come. But while you're here, love God, love others, Share Jesus. With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, help us to be people who love you and who trust you. May that be our, our legacy. In Jesus' name, amen.